difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky And Keith Phipps. On the first half of this episode, we discuss Michael Moore's galvanizing debut feature, Roger and Me. With this half, we'll check in on Moore's latest documentary, Fahrenheit 11.9, an up-to-the-minute examination of life under Donald J. Trump. A semi-sequel to Fahrenheit 9.11, his pre-election dirty bomb about George W. Bush's first term in office... Fahrenheit 11.9 begins with an homage to the Was It All a Dream sequence that opens the earlier one. The dream, in this case, is the unlikely election of Donald Trump to the presidency after pundits and pollsters had all but declared Hillary Clinton the winner. From there, Moore offers a wide-ranging, and at 125 minutes, incredibly long, assessment of how Trump came to get elected, at the fealty of both parties to corporate interests, and at other hot topics like the Parkland shootings, the wave of strikes by teachers' unions, the candidacies of exciting newcomers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and what Donald Trump has in common with Hitler. At the same time, he also returns to his hometown of Flint, Michigan, and digs into the water crisis that continues to make national headlines. He doesn't quite go full Roger and me, but he does his best to heckle Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, who bowed to corporate interest in changing the city's water supply from Lake Huron to the polluted Flint River, resulting in unsafe levels of lead. To more, Snyder's neglect of ordinary citizens has compounded the problems elucidated by Roger and me and has sent his native city to a darker place than ever. We'll talk about all those issues and more after the break. I'm sick and tired of people telling me that America is the greatest country because we can whip your ass. I hate some of these people, but I'd never kill them. How do you deal with this? You're never going to be able to unsee what you saw. Try to impeach him. Just try it. You will have a spasm of violence in this country like you've never seen. Governor Snyder, I got some Flint water for you. If nobody's gonna do it, then I gotta do it. And I don't give a who you are. I'll fight you in the damn street right now. Okay. Um. Um. How the did this happen? The American dream is dead. Stop resisting. The president's powers here are beyond question. Ladies and gentlemen, the last president of the United States. So, Michael Moore, 29 years later, Fahrenheit 11.9. A.K.A. Michael Moore's greatest hits. <laughs> so what, 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 did, what did everyone think of Fahrenheit 11.9? It's really bad, guys. Um, <laughs> I, you know, after watching us, I, it was just so all over the place and so it did not cohere into anything for me except the Flint segments were, mm-hmm. were really quite striking. I, I think, you know, I'm not alone in pointing this out, but I mean, there's a really good Flint, Michigan movie in, right. this, in this movie, but it's scattered all over the place. And I wondered if, if Michael Moore was any good, ever any good after watching this movie, <laughs> I, I, I found it so shallow and dishonest in a lot of ways without disagreeing with its central point in any way. And then I watched Roger and me, which is great. And, and it's not, it's got some of the same, same flaws, the same problematic elements um, as, as this one, but you know, it benefits from really being focused and telling a story I did not know about. And while I've, I do know about the Flint water crisis of recent years, I didn't follow it closely enough to understand all the details of it. And I was grateful to learn about it here. Other than that, I felt like I was spending two hours just kind of 
flipping through my Twitter feed in the last couple of years. Like now, <laughs> now we're dealing with this story, and now here's this outrageous thing that happened, and here's this sort of half baked theory that doesn't quite work, and and here's a really not as as shallow as it ought to be comparison to Hitler, but also like come on, there's got to be a more productive argument to be made against Trump at this point than just here's how he resembles Hitler. And then, you know, he finds some good interview subjects, even on that point, which which he, you know, I think the low point of the movie is just overdubbing Trump's voice over footage mm. of Hitler, <laughs> which is, you know, it's it's a Facebook meme. It's, it's, it's a left-wing website's, you know, shrill attempt to get your attention in movie form. Uh, but even there, I mean, he finds good people to talk to about the rise of authoritarianism, but he doesn't really let them go, go on enough. And then... You know, he puts himself front and center in a way that it feels like kind of a cult of personality film. And yeah, I've, I've probably said enough. I, 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 it is, this movie did not work for me uh, very well, very much at all. That's the longest you've ever spoken in a stretch on this, <laughs> I, uh, this podcast. Keith, Keith had that bottled up. Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot and no one to talk to about, except for Scott <laughs> and you, who I knew had seen it, but I didn't want to talk about it until we did this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with anything you said. I don't think I would go so far as to call this movie really bad, but I do think it has a lot of problems. And I think a lot of those problems boil down to over-familiarity, over-familiarity with Moore's style and politics and how he makes movies and over-familiarity with the subject matter, like what you said about how this feels like scrolling through your Twitter feed. Like one of the things I think that made Roger and me so bracing is that it was like a story that people hadn't heard. And the arguments that Moore is putting forth in Fahrenheit 11.9 are not new arguments. They're compelling arguments depending on your outlook you know and like it's maybe satisfying and occasionally even surprising like there are a few moments in this movie that i found fairly enlightening um a lot of them having to do with the flint segment which i agree is definitely the strongest part of the film and i kind of wish he had rather than making a sequel to all his movies he had just committed to making a spiritual sequel to Roger and me and focusing entirely on the Flint water crisis, because I think this movie makes pretty clear that like a lot of the larger problems in our country right now are kind of centralized to a certain degree in what is happening with the the Flint water crisis and the corporate interests and the stonewalling and so on and so forth. Like I think you could use that specific story as a way to illustrate larger points rather than making it sort of the largest point within a story that has a bunch of other competing points. Yeah, I mean, there's, maybe that's an alternate way he could have done it in terms of if he wanted to make this film both about Flynn and then also about these national issues, then make that the actual focus. I mean, mm-hmm. I, what is so lost in this film, especially when you compare it to Roger and me, but what's so lost in the film is that ability to shape a narrative. I mean, I literally thought this film would never end. I mean, I, <laughs> I was almost started laughing when he would just cut, go on to another subject and just give you another 10 or 15 minutes on it. I was thinking, like, there's no indication structurally that he isn't in the projection booth editing more stuff onto <laughs> the film. There's nothing structurally to indicate that there's an arc or there's somewhere this thing is going. It's just going to touch all of the bases he wants to touch. And, and that's been part of his, I wouldn't say growth or evolution or, well, de-evolution, but that's been part of his way of making movies, which is just to be in the moment to kind of cast a net over a bunch of different things that are happening at once. Maybe you have a central idea, but the rest of it is just, let's just take a broad assessment of what's going on. And that strategy really lets him down here. And again, I'm going to join the chorus in that this film should have been about Flint. This should have been me and Roger, me and <laughs> me and whoever it needed to be against, like the, rather than a sequel to Fahrenheit 9-11, you know, it's so clear that that's what the film needed to be about because it's the strongest stuff in the in the movie. As much as it's gotten national attention, we still don't know as much as we're given in this film. And at, good at the information. pace at which the news moves now, it hasn't been talked about in any prominent way for a long time, and it remains an issue. We haven't gotten to connections yet, but it is this sort of a neat connection between the way Miss Michigan is is treated and Roger and me as as sort of this this empty headed person who goes on to become Miss America and and Miss Michigan at this year's Miss America who made Flint part of her oh, opening right. speech, you know. Oh, and that's, that's, right. that's um, right. So why wasn't that in this movie? <laughs> but that was also the first time I'd heard about. Flint in, in mainstream news in a, in a long time and and you know something calling attention to that again and I think it you have a better movie maybe you have a less marketable movie I think part of the attraction of this movie was like he's going to get some dirt on Trump we haven't seen before and 
And he really doesn't. I mean, there's really nothing in here that I had not seen um, ad nauseum by critics of, of Trump uh, in the last couple of years. I will say in the Flint sequence, the part that took me by surprise, and it really probably shouldn't have, but just because the event itself sort of like predates this can't look away news cycle we're in now, but the stuff with Obama's visit to, mm, to Flint yes, yeah. in, the, in the drinking of the water segment. Like, I mean, I'm under no illusions that Obama was this, you know, pristine president and like the, the movie makes a point to catalog some of the sins of his administration. But that specific moment was shocking. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I looked over at my boyfriend and like his mouth was open, you, you know. And so in terms of actually enlightening something that people, you know, maybe are not aware of, there is a lot of opportunity for that, I think, in the Flint story. And he does it to a certain extent but he probably could have done it over feature length even better. And I think that's the conflict you're running into with Michael Moore, the filmmaker clashing with Michael Moore, the public figure. I mean, I think think at this point, he feels like he needs to be out there on a huge stage making the big necessary statements, big comprehensive statements, and not... He doesn't use maybe a better filmmaking instinct, which is to go back to his roots and really make a film about Flint. I mean, I honestly think that if that if he had taken that leap and tried to do something smaller for once and mm-hmm. tried to and try to really bear down on one thing, I mean, that, the film would have gotten better reviews and would have been gotten better box office. I think uh, you know the film was really unsuccessful, and uh, I think it's because we just kind of anticipate what it is that a Michael Moore film looks like. I mean, I think it also to a certain extent, to give a little leeway to more, like, has to do with a maybe a little bit of Trump fatigue in mm-hmm. terms of documentaries, like Dinesh D'Souza's, I'm not even going to call it a documentary, but his his Trump, you know, pro-Trump movie also kind of bombed. And, and there's been some analysis of that that may have to do with sort of, like, how wide these films are being released and the presumption that, like, there is a appetite for this story when maybe... This is not the story well, I mean, that the people want to see a movie about I, right I mean, now. I mean, I'm trying to escape the story every once yeah. in a while. And, and, and not that, you know, I go to the movies to, to dodge reality every time I go. But, but I mean, you know. When it's this pummeling, when it's coming yeah. at you from oh so many God. different angles, well, like, you know, that it does feel gratuitous. And it show me something new mm-hmm. as, as well. I mean, Fahrenheit 9-11 had its issues, but I also felt like I was seeing some aspects of the story I'd not seen before, you know, laid out in a way that kind of told me something. And this was just, and then this happened. And isn't it shocking? It's like, this has been my life for the last two years. I mean, if, if I'm being generous to more, I think that there is some attempt to create some sort of narrative around grassroots activism, labor campaigns, very progressive candidates mm-hmm. and, how they are, in his view, the only way out of this. Mm, You know, like the attention given to the teachers' strikes and the attention given to this wave of super progressive candidates. And in that context, I think I can see what he was maybe getting at with, like, ending with that whole Hitler despotism thing and the suggestion that, like, we can't rely on the system as it's been established to fix this moment. Mm. The change has to come from below. And that is never explicated in the movie. But I think in terms of what Moore chooses to like portray positively in the movie, I think you can draw that narrative from it. Well, I want to I make a couple of points. I mean, one, one to kind of go back just a little bit. I wanted to just leave the theater after the first 10 minutes. It was absolutely excruciating <laughs> to read. No, oh, I, did, I did not think I would be the most positive on this movie. Just to be in that place emotionally again. I mean, the, the yeah. night... Trump got elected is the, probably the yeah. worst night of my life. I mean, and and, uh, and I don't even want to talk about this, the many levels in which it, uh, which it was horrible on a personal level, let alone a national level. But to relive that was excruciating. And then also the tone of it from Moore's perspective, because he was warning people, hey, Michigan, you know, I know my people. This, You know, you, mm-hmm. you could be surprised by where they're going to go. There was a kind of a told you so aspect to it that I really detested and that sort of minimized the hard work that a lot of people did on uh, on Hillary Clinton's behalf and in the passion that they put in themselves in the line. I mean, it was a very difficult loss to sustain for many people, particularly women, I would think, and particularly Democratic women. 
so that was an annoyance. To go to the other point that you were making about the prescription, yeah, the film itself seems like kind of a democratic socialist of America mm-hmm. uh, propaganda film. But, but I mean, the Bernie stuff, uh, yeah, it's I mean, pretty like, blatant. All the counties in West Virginia that voted for Bernie at the delegate split, what, 1817 or something like that to, mm-hmm. to Clinton. And I, you know, I get that and and i think there's a i think i think the film does do as well as it can to build a comprehensive argument that both parties are beholden to corporations and that and that is dampening enthusiasm and keeping people who would be maybe like to vote but have feel like their vote doesn't count mm-hmm. i mean all of that makes a lot of sense but just the you know the hectoring way that he presents all of that is uh it's hard to take and it's all very so much a thumbnail sketch the way it's presented you just you just get a little bit of something and then you move on you get a little bit of park land you get a little bit of alexandria ocasio-cortez i mean it's just like these bite-sized pieces and they just it's not satisfying yeah and like again flint is the only thing that he comes back to repeatedly other than trump i guess but in terms of these little you know vignettes of the country he's he's presenting there is the parkland segment and there is the progressive candidate segment but flint like gets room to spread out throughout the film and you know he can come back to it in different context or you know from different angles throughout the film if only that was that was all he did you know but Mm -hmm. and i I think the fact that he does come back to it and only it repeatedly signals to me that like deep down maybe like he suspected that like this was the story here that he should be telling and that Mm -hmm. he was equipped to tell but maybe michael moore has you know become a little too enamored with everything he's done since since roger and me i mean i I was i wasn't really joking when i said this plays a little like uh, michael moore's greatest hits and yeah greatest maybe is in ironic quotation marks depending on on your viewpoint but you know there's obviously it's calling directly to fahrenheit 9-11 there's lots of bowling for columbine in here not so much sicko but there's you know a a brief glancing against healthcare. you know so it does sort of feel like more feels compelled to keeping more more (laughs) you know more 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 how do you like it not that great (laughs) But there does seem to be a, an instinct there that Flint was the story he should be telling here. Uh, speaking of Flint, that brings us right back to Roger and me. And so this is a great time to talk about connections uh, after the break between Roger and me and Fahrenheit 11.9. The definition of electoral insanity is trying to re-elect these same guys over and over again and expecting our country to be any different. For the first time, Democrats will have an all-female statewide ticket. And on that list, Rashida Tlaib, she is poised to become the first Muslim woman in Congress. We're not ready to give up on the party. We're just ready to take it over. And let's put some people in there that get it because we felt the Take it over. Take it over. Mm. Take it over, Michael. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So I think maybe we should just start with the nature of this film and of uh, of both films as being first-person documentaries. Uh, Where do we start with Roger and Me, and where are we now with Fahrenheit 11.9? Yeah, I mean, Roger and Me, it's like he sets out sort of establishing his his bona fides or whatever as, I'm a Flint boy, you know, like, this this is my story because I'm from Flint. And... In Fahrenheit 11.9, it it feels kind of like he's doing the same thing, but establishing himself as a political gadfly, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like he talks about the interactions he's had with these figures. And he's very forthright about Kushner being, you know, uh, a big booster of sicko. And, yeah, and Bannon, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just sort of both the evolution of what Moore has become and how he is perceived as a public figure now as opposed to a nobody i guess or a a less public figure at the time of roger and me combined with fahrenheit 11.9's just like desire to do everything (laughs) it's a very extra film from a filmmaker who has become a very extra filmmaker yeah i mean i mean among other things he loses the element of surprise both for the people he talks to and for people watching his movies i mean roger and me you get sort of this affable um, you know, every man type of guy who's who can 
like, you know, what if I picked up a camera and tried to talk to a Roger, you know, Roger Smith, it would probably look a lot like this. And now he's Michael Moore with, you know, all capital letters and, and, um, on Roseanne's talk show, Roseanne's talk show. <laughs> and yeah, what a strange collection yeah. of <laughs> personalities that scene was, but it, it's just the burden of that is, is I think kind of visibly weighing on him where, where he's. He looks weary, you know, he seems kind of, um, there's at least a, a sort of a, a drive to the Michael Moore we meet in Roger and me. And now it's just like, there's kind of a, here we go again, like even to the way he presents it, uh, here's an, another chapter in the ongoing story of everything that's wrong with America. And, and, you know, I've seen it before. Also, there's sort of an assumption that, that we're all longtime Michael Moore followers waiting for the next chapter in the Michael Moore story that kind of creeps into this too. And I, th- I don't think that necessarily serves the uh, film well. Yeah. I mean that, that element of narcissism is so extreme in this film to a degree. It wasn't present in Roger Me sure. simply because he just wasn't a celebrity of in the same way he is now. So that's a factor. And, and just, again, I said this before, but just the need to be on the biggest possible stage and to elevate this argument and make these very grand pronouncements about the state of the Democratic Party, about the rise of Donald Trump, about demagoguery and grassroots political activism and just needing to just, you know, cover everything and cover violence in schools. I mean, there's just it's all there. It's like this grand buffet of material. And it's it feels a little bit like kind of an older man's film of a, of a, of a ramble. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, and that's not a great feeling, especially, again, 125 minutes is egregious and you really have to start thinking about the health of your movie rather than the comprehensiveness of your argument at that point. Also interests me as a byproduct, I guess, of Michael Moore is just the effect that Michael Moore himself had on documentary culture too, in terms of other first person documentaries, people like Nick Broomfield or, Morgan Spurlock or Dinesh D'Souza, who I assume is first person. Is he first person or not? I, I, I'll never know. I know. I, <laughs> I, I just never I, know. I, I won't know. But 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 you certainly know who the filmmaker is sure. in, that, in that respect. And and um, I will say that the overall effect of this type of first person documentary filmmaking is negative. Uh, I don't necessarily appreciate well Morgan Spurlock terribly much. Broomfield I started out liking, but it felt like also the colder personality around him started become sort of a distorting cloud as well. The thing I like about Broomfield though is that he really plays up the Naif. The naif thing in a way yeah. that to me is just absolutely hilarious. Just he'll put himself in the most sordid situation with the sleaziest people you can imagine and just act like he was born yesterday and there's something just so funny about that to me even while i recognize it is as tactically crude so i wouldn't necessarily talk about michael moore as being a hugely positive influence on the direction of documentary filmmaking in general but i think one of the things that he does this is another connection i want to get to is he talks to his people and shapes their thoughts. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the on the notion of preaching to the choir because that's another thing that's brought up when the Michael Moore film comes out. It's like, yeah, so what? A bunch of people saw it, but you're, he's just preaching to the choir. He's not changing anybody's minds. What do you think of that concept? I mean, I think it is predicated on the assumption that the job of movies is to change your mind about something or, or to tell you how to feel about something. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people do think of documentary filmmaking that way and like as a way to figure out how you're supposed to think about something. But I also don't think that is maybe the most productive way to think about documentary and definitely not the most productive way to uh, think about the type of documentary that Michael Moore makes. But like, I mean, I guess if he is preaching to the choir, I am the choir. Mm-hmm. And I go into his movies realizing that. But I also always come out of these movies feeling like I'm missing a big piece, which is how someone who isn't me, who doesn't share my views, would process this movie. And that's something I can't know, you know, unless I like force someone to go see this movie with me who doesn't want to go see it. And that aspect, I find myself thinking about that a lot more than the movie itself after Fahrenheit 11.9. Like I spent so much more time thinking about how would a Trump supporter process this movie than actually processing the movie myself because it, much of it was so familiar that it just glanced off of me. It's funny that you mentioned like how people from a different political vantage might view one of Michael Moore's films because one of what maybe my certainly my most right-wing friend, I don't have a ton of them, really 
dislikes Michael Moore but loves Roger and me. So uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know. I think I think maybe there's a way of getting enough distance where you appreciate you know the, the storytelling and and the humor and all those other elements. So it's possible. Also, like the politics of Roger and me exist mostly outside the tribalism of our current politics. Like it is not. It's a telling a story about capitalism Mm. but i don't think it's telling a story necessarily about liberalism slash progressivism versus conservative thought you know know? uh trump and others don't like nafta and that's certainly you know this is pre-nafta but it's sort of the same conditions that led to it so i can definitely you know there's some overlap there i would think more than that though it's it's a well-told movie and and i i would you know, I'm more interested in, in an effective movie, whether or not I agree with its politics. Um, although, you know, if I, if I was diametrically opposed to a film's politics, that may not matter. I don't know. I mean, we were, we were just sitting here saying how we're never going to see the Dinesh D'Souza movie. Yeah. And, you know, like, I mean, we're, and they, we're they, on the other side of this, too, you know? Yeah, but but they get such glowing reviews. <laughs> and I'm just I'm dying to check them out. Yeah, I mean, um, if, 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 it were, if, if his films were, like, well-received or supposed to be aesthetically interesting, uh, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd go see them. But I, I've certainly seen films as politics i agree with i didn't care for i mean to, to much to a large extent this one i mean uh, <laughs> but, um for the record by the way um scott excluding michael moore and trump land um uh, which is a concert film i don't even know that it got that much of a theatrical release he has not made a movie under 120 minutes uh, since the big one in 1997, they've all been. I was surprised at your surprise at how long it was. Because oh, I, wow. yeah. while we're sharing stats real quickly, this was again, with the exception of Michael Moore and, and Trump Land, this was his lowest grossing movie also since the big one. But I bring this up to kind of piggyback off the thread we've been pulling out of like maybe Michael Moore buying his own hype or, or whatever. Like this movie opened huge. It opened in 1700 theaters, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 opened in 2000. And that's the only movie of his that opened bigger than this one. So like, I feel like there was sort of an assumption, you know, that this is something that people want to hear from Michael Moore at well, this point in time. I think good reviews made a difference. I think showing us something we didn't know might have made a difference too. And again, the Flint movie that we're, that we're all re-editing in our head would have done that. Some sort of actual insight into Trump that we hadn't seen before that might have helped. I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't check out of the movie, but I, I realized this was just not going to work for me. During that long sequence where it's all like that footage of him saying suggested things about his daughter. And it's like, yeah, I know. I've seen this. Mm-hmm. You may be making too big a deal about it, you know, but yeah. maybe not. It's just, it's just, but it's, it's old news at this point. Yeah, boy. That, I and it's such a, it's such a sleazy insinuation that for about a sleazy person saying sleazy things, but also yeah, it just doesn't work. No, it's really such a side issue. A couple of things. I mean, one about the failure of the film at the box office. I mean, Fahrenheit 9-11, there were some special circumstances that led that to be such a sensation. I mean, one is that it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, so it made a huge seismic impact there. And two, it had, it had proper distribution and, and promotion, and really there was a lot of very carefully handled marketing around that movie. I mean, it was, uh, I think, the Weinsteins, but uh, <laughs> but it was a type of film that they could handle really well. I mean, this is just, I think he's almost self-distributing now. I don't think this is not, it's like Briar Cliff releasing. It's not really, you know, I think there's the, the hope that, you know, you you know, if you just dump it in two thousand theaters and it's his name is Michael Moore and maybe you get some some nice reviews that it's gonna take off in the same way and it didn't. But I, I think that still just explains part of it. As far as the preaching of the choir thing goes, my feeling is that there are subtler ways that the choir is affected by it. It's not really just about changing your mind or illuminating new new facts or something that you might not have known, but there's some of that here. But I think it has to do with how you think about an issue and how you the rhetoric that you use to make an argument around an issue. And, and I think, I think in that respect, Michael Moore has, has had a profound impact an invisible one maybe, but, but something that, you know, I think, I think that way too. so much of the daily show of just how much has John Stewart and that show's way of packaging the news as comedy and, and, uh, you know, including all of these sort of punchlines and stuff, how much of that has really affected the way we talk about politics, you know, often in a humorous and sarcastic way. So I think there are subtler ways that 
a Michael Moore film might bleed into the culture and affect the way that we talk to each other and think about politics. That's true. And while this is, I hadn't even thought about that. And while this is like a less of a comedic film than some of his past films, and I hadn't really even thought about The Daily Show and, and Moore's influence on that whole genre. And I, I had to confess, that's a genre of comedy that I used to enjoy a lot more than I do now. And I've more or less checked out on late night topical comedy stuff like The Daily Show. I think Colbert is a great comic and, and a really fascinating person, but I can't watch that show now because it's just so much about just sort of easy, angry jokes about Trump. And again, it's, it's a case where I agree with what you're saying, but I'm just not finding the humor in it. I, I mean, this may be my issue and not anybody else's issue, but, but I, I find... You know, even people I used to really like, I, I don't watch anymore. Yeah, I like to get all my news in distracted boyfriend meme form. <laughs> <laughs> um, Keith, you brought up, you, you're known as a funny man. You brought up, you brought up the know. issue. Keith, I don't funny know. man, Phipps. Uh, That's what we call. You know, you, you worked for the Onion, did you not? <laughs> yeah. um, yes, I was responsible for all the hilarious headlines that you enjoyed on, on the Onion. Enjoyed, as were you, right? Yeah, well, oh, you, you were the, you you the turtle guy. You were responsible for the Kovanzane Wallace joke, right? Uh, <laughs> that was my, that was my one contribution. And I never, they never asked me to do anything. We're, we're, all, we're all joking here. I know. I, I did not uh, come up with that. But um, humor and stunts are two things that Michael Moore uh, deploys often in his films, uh, both in Roger and Me and a little bit in Fahrenheit 11.9. Let's talk about that. Uh, the stunts in Fahrenheit 11.9 bugged me so mm-hmm. much. Oh, the water on the, the lawn? The water. Like, yes. it's so bad. And, and the, like, trying to arrest Snyder, like, or uh, citizens arrest. Mm-hmm. Like, they were both just such weak sauce and like compared to Roger and me which is like I guess you could call it like an extended stunt like the stunt being trying to get uh, Roger Smith to come to Flint Mm -hmm. you know in Fahrenheit 11.9 they feel so perfunctory like that image of him just alone outside Governor Snyder's mansion like with this huge fire hose like it just it was sad and like it seemed very attention seeking because it, like there was no even indication that Snyder was there, you know, like just some lawn workers next door were taking a video and that was like the extent <laughs> so of its impact, you know, and like, but again, to like bring it back to this idea of Michael Moore's greatest hits or whatever, like there's the assumption that this is what he does. He does, you know, some in your face confrontational thing, you know, that's also kind of funny. But it just, it's real weak here, I think. That was really bad. And I want to ask you a question, Genevieve. Is there a circumstance in which somebody uh, you don't know uh, hands you a glass of water (laughs) 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 and asks you to drink it? Is there a circumstance in which you would drink that uncovered glass of water that you have no idea where the water came from? As as a woman in America in 2018, I can definitively say yes. (laughs) I'm going to say that I'm going to, I would assume that Michael Moore would not poison me on camera or probably off camera either. So I, I think I probably would have drunk that glass of water, but I understand what you're saying. No, no. I just yeah. think that I just, I, that is, that's something that connects the two films is just the punching down is the kind of, if he can't talk to the big guy that he's now free to harangue the gatekeepers mm-hmm. who are probably not making a whole lot of money to keep people out of their clubs or out of the, uh, you know, somebody at the information desk at a corporate headquarters. I mean, that I don't really feel like there's much to be gained from tormenting those people. Yeah, well, and, and in Roger and me, to go back to what we were discussing in the first half about sort of the fudging of the chronology, you know, like he filmed that movie over three years. Like he was hounding GM for years, ostensibly. And these people, the you know, these security guards, publicists, whatever, who like just seem so annoyed and confrontational on camera, like they've probably been subjected to this over and over again. Yeah. And like at a certain point, they know what's coming. You know, they know what they're going to have to say. They know what he's going to say. And I'm sure it's exhausting. <laughs> I can't quite say I feel sorry for them because like, that's sort of what you signed up for to a certain extent, at least in, in terms of publicists. I, I have yeah. a lot less or I have a lot more sympathy for security guards, uh, yeah. you know, who he gets in the face of. But yeah, I, I guess there's just sort of a, a lack of honesty going on in terms of 
what we see of those interactions between him and these these flags and what they have experienced of him up to that point. I think he's lost his curveball over the years, too, where people didn't know who Michael Moore was. He could get them to say all sorts of things on camera. like. You know, Bob Eubanks telling off off-color <laughs> jokes, and, well, off-color slash awful slash yeah. <laughs> racist jokes, um, and misogynist. Uh, Don't and forget. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't want to leave that one out. You know, and, and now people have their guard up. You say the word Michael Moore. I mean, I, I'd get my guard up. I don't want to talk to someone who's going to, <laughs> going yeah. to make me look stupid on camera. But in 1989 or, you know, the late 80s when he filmed Roger, I mean, people didn't know any better. Yeah. And I mean, imagine this. I mean, because, you know, with documentary filmmaking, with profiles, there's such a trust issue and uh, that has to develop between filmmaker and subject because the subject has to be able to have faith that you're going to handle their story properly. You know, I don't think anybody with Michael Moore, you're thinking, Oh, I'm just going to be, you know, fit into whatever box he's going to put me in. And that's, and uh, you know, maybe that's not going to be a flattering thing. So the other thing too, is like humor, right? I mean, because I mean, Ebert called, Roger and me swifting and in watching the film again there are several points in the film that I did find pretty funny what about Fahrenheit 11.9 were you was that a, a laugh riot <laughs> he, he is just like a, a barely non, has the strength a, a to shake non, his head a, a solid yeah. non-verbal response from yeah. for a podcast no I, I wasn't laughing too I, yeah, I sat next to you at this did movie. I laugh once or twice um, you know at? there are, there are a couple of moments where it just reminded us of such outrageous things that have happened in the last couple of years that you kind of have to chuckle. But I think that's just more the footage itself than, than anything Moore's doing with it. And I think it, there's also some humor in how he puts the footage together. And, you know, I talked about the use of juxtaposition and Roger and me and how prevalent it is. And like a lot of those cuts from one world to the other are pretty humorous, you know, or there's some more subtle types of humor i think that happen in the actual filmmaking and the like how the movies are actually put together and like i said in the first half it becomes like more and more apparent as roger and me goes on and in fahrenheit 11 9 it's just like it feels like cliche you know Mm -hmm. you know and like now here's a smash cut to something that seems totally unrelated oh Okay, well, we have to talk about the Gwen Stefani thing. <laughs> uh. That 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 was a, a big eye rolling moment for me, mm-hmm. and, and it's like kind of an, a good example of what I'm talking about. This like surprise unveiling of this like seemingly wacky theory that you know. T- yeah, <laughs> I'm having trouble putting into words like how an obnoxious I found that moment and and precisely why but it just feels like such an encapsulation of this like pop culture gotcha move that Mm -hmm. that michael moore has perfected over the years and kind of at the expense of gwen stefani who really didn't do anything wrong here (laughs) you know and there's nothing really backing it up like show me show me the actual evidence this is why he he did what he did you're showing correlation not causation yes i mean you could you could go all the way back i mean most people like to go back to that white house correspondence dinner when he was embarrassed pretty thoroughly by seth myers and by barack obama as being a foundational moment for his campaign but i did i did like and did uh i think by the diagnosis that this was a a joke campaign mm. that he came to like. But then, fair, part of me does buy that, but then how do we reconcile that with like the Hitler despotism stuff at the end and with the implication that Trump is part of this, you know, huge movement that is set to wreak havoc or already is wreaking havoc and like so when you pair that with oh he just fell ass backwards into the presidency like it takes away some of the impact of that uh latter assertion i think well but i think you could say that he had some latent instinct for demagoguery that was brought out by the atmosphere that he was sort of whipped up around himself. You, the, you the, could the, say the, that, but the does the film say that at any point? I and mean, does the film actually make, make an that argument? Di- make no. that yeah, I, I don't think it connects those dots. I don't think you're wrong, but yeah. I, I don't think that the film makes that kind of argument. Well, it's all it's so all over the map because once you get to, you know, you start at that point where, whoops, I just kind of bungled my way to the presidency. That's the beginning of the film. You don't really pick up the thread again with all the Hitler stuff until much, much later in the film. So, so there's no connective tissue at all between those things. Yeah. 
Oh, Michael Moore, what are I you mean, doing? Yeah, I mean, but like they could have been interesting bookends, you know, like if he had connected them in some way, mm-hmm. you, you know, like within those segments themselves. Like I could see like that is a prologue and epilogue type of, you know, approach, but it, it doesn't get there. I got a, uh, an idea for you. Would he be better off at this stage in his career being on television? He's done TV before. TV Nation was mm-hmm. his, ran for a couple of seasons on a couple of different networks here. Would, you know, sort of like half hour segments or 15 minute segments that, that focused him, you know, on one topic um, and it wasn't, you know, didn't need to be a feature film, could be a you know, spread out over 10 episodes or whatever. Is, is that a better form for Michael Moore? I wouldn't watch, but <laughs> it would be. It's a better form for this yeah, movie. Yeah, it seems like a streaming series, you know, sure. potential kind of thing. I, I can definitely see that argument, and it would definitely uh, address Scott's concern about the, the or maybe not even ballooning uh, runtimes, just, just inflated runtimes. Oh my god! It's just the way it's cut together. There's no shape to it. It, it literally just yeah, like I think it, feels, it just keeps adding segments. I think it just, feels like, it was, longer than it, it was is. insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. It, it, it's it's a long movie, but it's also an exhausting movie. And, 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 you know, when you get to the end, then you realize it's not the end. It's where it's the you have to relive the whole Hawaiian missile false alarm thing. And oh, oh God. God. Yeah. You, you, you guys keep bringing up parts that I completely forgot yeah, because no, they were like because they were just thrown in there. You know, it's all in there. Yeah, yeah it's, all, in, it's all one rich tapestry, right? <laughs> yeah. Kind of a stew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rabbit stew. <laughs> well, we we could go on and on and on and on, but unlike Michael Moore, we we know how to end a segment. Uh, Roger and Me is currently available to stream on all the usual services. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. Fahrenheit eleven nine may still be in a few theaters, but not for long. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show, in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately, my friend? It's less lately. I just a movie that's been on my mind for a couple of weeks. You know, at this point, the timeliness recommendation will have, have whiskers on it, little, you know, thick, masculine whiskers on it, because I'm recommending a Burt Reynolds film, in which actually he does not have a mustache. Um, it's, it's a 1979 film called Starting Over. It was a film I watched after Reynolds died, and it's one I had not seen before. And it's really good. It's an Alan Pacula film. It is the first film screenplay of James L. Brooks. And it's really, uh, I mean, Pacula's, you know, provides some really fine direction. It's got a great look. Sven Nickvist did the cinematography for it. But it's a real, it's a James Brooks heart, film at heart. And it's really funny and really heartfelt. Um, Burt Reynolds plays a man who breaks up with his wife, played by Candace Bergen. And one of the funniest running gags, uh, uh, you know, he, he founds out that she'd been having an affair and she writes sort of a hit song about the end of their marriage. So he hears it everywhere. <laughs> and that's sort of like the her turning their on again, off again relationship in, into music is, is a, is a really funny, uh, running gag. But anyway, he, he, he sets off on his own for the, you know, we get the sense for the first time in years, reconnects with his brother, plays with Charles Journey. I'm, I'm not sure what DNA leads to Burt Reynolds and Charles Journey <laughs> being <laughs> brothers, but, but they're very good together in the film. And he begins a new relationship with Jill Clayburgh, who's also, uh, terrific. And, it's just a really heartfelt, very uh, 70s dramedy that sort of you know lets you live with these characters for a while. Reynolds is very good. It's a very restrained performance. There's one scene uh, in which he gets to do some tomfoolery, and it's probably the weakest scene of the movie. It's mostly just someone who's really had the rug pulled out from under him. Um, and it was quite popular at the time. I feel like it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle over the years, but um, Brigham and Clayburgh both got nominated for Academy Awards uh, for their work here. Uh, Reynolds didn't. Uh, I believe he made uh, Smoking the Bandit 2 the next year, mm. uh, so it's kind of a retreat from a more ambitious film, uh, but it really works quite well. I, I, I'd, I'd recommend seeking it out. Yeah, I've heard really good things about that one. 
Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, I want to recommend a film called Support the Girls, which is the latest from Mumblecore pioneer Andrew Bujalski, starring Regina Hall as the store manager of a Hooters-like restaurant called <clears throat> Double Whammies. Uh, <laughs> it sort of takes the form of a workplace comedy slash day-in-the-life story following Hall's character, Lisa, who aims to run the restaurant as a family-friendly concept that doubles as a safe space for her female employees who are objectified as a matter of course. Uh, that's obviously a pretty loaded proposition, but Support the Girls takes a really light hand when it comes to moralizing over its feminist themes, uh, which are very present nonetheless. As is typical with Bujalski, it's fairly plot light, relying more on character interactions and dialogue to tell its story. And with Hall at the center of most of those character interactions, it's an approach that works really well here. Lisa aims to be this grounding maternal force amid the light chaos of this restaurant and its employees and clientele, uh, but the film makes it very clear the emotional toll this role takes on her. Uh, Hall is responsible for much of what makes this movie work, though the supporting cast has some standouts as well, uh, particularly Shayna McHale, also known as the rapper Jungle Pussy, uh, as the more cynical heir to Lisa's managerial throne, uh, and Haley Lou Richardson, whom you might know from Edge of Seventeen, as the restaurant's hyper-enthusiastic alpha employee who will make anyone who's ever worked in a restaurant chuckle in recognition. Uh, this movie released simultaneously in theaters and on demand, and while there's an outside chance it's still playing in a theater near you when you hear this, uh, it's a fine one to just rent for five bucks at home and hang out for 90 minutes inside this world. Uh, if you go to supportthegirlsfilm.com, you can see all the viewing options available to you, and I would recommend you take one of them. Me too. I love this movie. Oh, good. I was hoping... Scott shocked me when I he said he hadn't believe. seen it I yet. Oh, no, it's great. You'll love it. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, Bujalski is one of my favorite indie filmmakers, and the fact that I haven't seen this movie is just... I guess it speaks to what kind of a schedule I'm dealing with these yeah, days. Yeah, I know. But, but, but I, will, I will definitely watch the film this week, if not next. There, there's an, an, an insane-looking, wonderfully reviewed Nicolas Cage movie out. that I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. It's playing Mandy. down the block for it's, me. I know. I know. I've been so busy with other Unreal. stuff. Unreal. <laughs> People want us to, to talk about that movie so much, you guys. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm this is, see it. We're going to have to yet. disappoint people this time of year because it's such, from here on out, it's just such a wealth of interesting movies that we can pair up you know summer's a different story to some yeah. extent but oh, we'll, have to, we'll have to make the most of our your next picture show segments then <laughs> we have to resort to the meg <laughs> <laughs> yeah right exactly there's not not going to be any megs coming up and also just you know it can be hard for us to even for the, like the big ticket summer movies it's hard to find you know that classic pairing mm-hmm. because because they seem made of all sorts of different materials and don't you know, oftentimes a Marvel film will not be terribly suggestive of something uh, in the past. And then sometimes we'll pair Wonder Woman with Paths of Glory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right. Right. I mean, sometimes when we stretch, it's fun. Yeah. But we have to stretch. Yeah. Scott, what about you? Uh, well, to stay on the documentary front, I wanted to recommend a film called Bisbee 17. Oh. Uh, that's the new documentary by Robert Green, whose previous work includes Kate Plays Christine and Actress. Uh, Green likes to experiment in nonfiction, specifically with performance. Kate Plays Christine is about the actress Caitlin Scheel and the process she goes through to research and play Christine Chubbuck, the Florida news reporter who killed herself on air in 1974. So, you know, that's all staged. I mean, there's not an actual film that's being made, but they proceed as if there is. Um, Actress is a film about Green's former neighbor, Brandy Burr, a former actress who is best known for a small role in The Wire, and it follows her efforts to get back into performing through these fascinatingly stylized sequences. Uh, with Bisbee 17, Green's most ambitious film to date, uh, he visits a small town in New Mexico where, in 1917, some 2,000 immigrants who were on strike from the local mine were violently rounded up by their neighbors and shipped to the middle of the desert where they were left to die. <laughs> this shameful incident called the Bisbee Deportation is reenacted in the film by the current residents of Bisbee playing various roles. Mm. And in the process of restaging this event on its 100th anniversary, the citizens of the town are forced to confront feelings of bigotry and discrimination that they might have otherwise shifted aside. It's an extraordinarily powerful, audacious film. It looks great. I mean, it's like a, a real Western. Um, and it sort of happily resides on the border between fiction and nonfiction, which is really very much where Robert Greene likes to play. You know, it, it's certainly extremely resonant in the year 2018 when the treatment of immigrant families in the United States is, is very much back in the public conscience. So uh, I recommend it, Bisbee 17. It's a little bit hard to seek out. It's been out for several weeks, but on a very 
slow release schedule. It's a very uh, small distributor, so I, I'd kind of look look out for it in you know your local theaters. If you have an art house in your city, maybe hopefully it shows up there, and eventually it will turn up on streaming services and home video. So keep it in your head. Uh, Bisbee Seventeen, it's a very good movie. Yeah, Alyssa Wilkinson, the Vox film critic, has been hugely complimentary of this film since it premiered at Sundance. Was yeah, it? Sundance. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, she's been a big booster of it, and. Uh, hooked me up with a screener that I was planning to watch on my recent vacation and then yeah. did not because it didn't really seem like vacation no, viewing. I mean, it's, it's over, but I am I'm over super, two hours. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm super curious uh, and eager to dive into it. Uh, Scott, films can be over two hours. I know. This <laughs> one, I, was, I was about to say, this one justifies its length a little better than the Michael Moore, for sure. Though could, I think it's still a week shorter. But, uh, still, it's a, <laughs> we it's like a good movies, one. especially when they're short. <laughs> yep. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out October 16th and October 23rd. Keith, what's on the docket? In our next two episodes, we'll be talking about two films in which Robert Redford plays Outlaws. The 1969 George Roy Hill-directed Western Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, in which Redford plays a bandit in the final days of the Old West, who comes to realize his era is starting to pass. And Redford's latest, The Old Man and the Gun, a David Lowry film in which Redford plays a bank robber in a different era who finds himself unable or unwilling to quit well after the age of retirement. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Roger and Me, Fahrenheit 11.9, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find my work at the culture section at box.com and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky where I am mostly tweeting about how I don't like Twitter. Keith? Uh, you can find me a lot of places these days. I'm a freelancer and you know, freelancer for hire. Um, you can find me at, oh gosh, Vulture, um, at The Verge, at The Ringer, at uh, Rolling Stone occasionally. You know, I'm out there. And you can, I collect my clips at keithphipps.com and you can read, and you can read my tweets on the Twitter platform at <laughs> kphipps3000. Scott, how about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias and uh, you can find my work in New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, uh, NPR, and other fine publications. And you can find our colleague, or, uh, Tasha, at, at Tasha Robinson on Twitter. She's also the film and TV editor at The Verge. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space and her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. The left was fight and the right and the right was fight and the light and the light was blind in the night and the night woke up in tears. When my fingers went to wipe them, they became a poem, but to write then they would have to speak tears in another language that would take years. Now as I'm leaving, I'm weary as hell. The confusion I'm feeling.